Welcome, my name is Elaine Tran, and I'll be joining you today on the Rhizome Podcast, a storytelling project from Roots for Change exploring issues impacting youth in our communities. This is the second part of our look at how the sexual health education many students receive in our public school system falls short of being comprehensive. Last episode, we heard directly from students on their perspectives. Today, we will hear from Jeremiah Levine, a public educator and Wise Guys facilitator with the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton. Wise Guys is a healthy relationships and healthy sexuality program for boys and masculine youth. We particularly wanted to look at how masculinity and sexual health education collided, as there was a lack of engagement from boys and masculine youth from the students Reese and Ruth reached out to. Keep listening to hear why this might be the case and how we can better our sexual health curriculum to set all students up with a strong foundation of sexual health and consent in all areas of their lives. My name is Jeremiah. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I've been doing sexual health education for, uh, let's call it four years. I was brought into this work because when I was in university getting my bachelor's degree, I started taking women and gender studies classes. At that time, there was just kind of like a beginning of a lot of like feminist conversations, social justice type conversations uh, popping up on mainstream media. And as like a cisgender heterosexual man who was like very privileged in a lot of ways, uh, I found myself really confused by it. I didn't understand what the conversation was about. It seemed like a lot of people were very emotionally invested in the conversation and that like further concerned me. And I mean concerned in the sense that I was like, I don't feel comfortable wading into this conversation. I don't know what to say because I don't understand anything about it. So I decided that I wanted to get a bit more of what I thought at the time was like, you know, a professional rigorous opinion about it. So I was like, okay, I'm in the university. Let's take university classes about this. I took a lot of women and gender studies classes and I learned a lot about sexual violence, domestic violence or intimate partner violence. There's different words for it and homophobia, transphobia, et cetera. And uh, I was really filled with this sense of urgency that like, whoa, I need to do something about this. There's so many awful things happening. So I was able to find my way after my degree into sexual health education, which is actually a really, really good way to have conversations with people about things like preventing sexual violence, as well as many other aspects of sexual health. So yeah, that's how I got into it. That sounds really cool. Thank you for sharing that and awesome work, Kjail. Just adding on, what are some challenges that you see in our current sexual health curriculum that compels you to do the work with challenging toxic masculinity and promoting comprehensive sexual health education? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for asking that. I think that some of the problems that I see in curriculum are not new problems, and they're not necessarily local problems in the sense that like, yeah, these problems are happening here and we're all struggling with this and kind of set up to fail with the sort of lack of like comprehensive sexual health education that young people have access to, let alone people of any age, but young people especially. But these are problems that are happening like all over education systems in many, many parts of the world, especially in North America, especially Canada, the United States. 
I think that's something that a lot of people don't know about is that there's actually been some research coming out these past few years that have been comparing schools that get comprehensive sexual health education with schools that get kind of like the uh, like stereotypical type of sexual health education that we hear about that's very uh, anti-choice. Um, and anti-choice means that somebody is against having reproductive health rights. So if somebody finds themselves pregnant, if someone is anti-choice, that person would say, you need to take that pregnancy all the way to the end, give birth to a child, and, you know, figure it out. So that's what it means to be anti-choice as opposed to pro-choice. Pro-choice is like, hey, if you're faced with this experience of becoming pregnant, you, you have options and you should have access to those options to figure out what's going to work best in your situation. Anyways, if we're talking about a type of education that is anti-choice, a type of education that is really not trying to give people information <laughs> that helps them out. Instead, they just kind of push abstinence without giving anyone information to really help out their health if they choose to not be abstinent. I'm just going to call it abstinence-only education. So if we're talking about an abstinence-only education versus a comprehensive sexual health education, some of the research that's been coming out lately has been saying that in places where we have comprehensive sexual health education, rates of unwanted and unplanned teenage pregnancy start to drop. Even when young people start to engage in sexual activity, starts to drop. And that, I think, is something really fascinating for all the folks who really want an abstinence-only education. Folks that want an abstinence-only education, they want people to start having sexual activity much later in life. People that want an abstinence-only education are typically very afraid or very uncomfortable with the notion of teenagers engaging in sexual activity or being sexual beings, or maybe they have a bit more of a religious traditional perspective and they want people to only engage in sexual activity once they're in a monogamous, usually heterosexual marriage. And if that is the case, if that is what someone wants, then look at these statistics. Uh, they might want to be supporting a comprehensive sexual health education because we're seeing from this research that people are making better decisions for themselves around their sexual health. And that it also seems that people are starting to engage in sexual activity later in life than when there's just no education at all. Thank you so much. So can you tell us more about what positive masculinity is and how it might apply to sexual health? So like, why is gender specific sexual health important? What do you think about splitting up sex ed classes by gender? And what does it say about ourselves if we are feeling uncomfortable talking about sexual health with people of different genders and sexualities other than our own? We were just thinking about it, how in junior high and high school, the sex ed classes we'd get, we'd be split by like boys and girls. And we were just wondering if there is benefit to that or like what you think about it, because from our experiences, the boys were just like watching movies. And the girls were like doing victim blaming or something. So it wasn't that great, but I know that the Vice Guys program that's focused just with male oriented folks. So I'm interested in hearing how that works and what you think about it. Sorry, I hope that made sense. That was a long ramble. Oh, no, no, not at all. This makes so much sense. I wanted to get a handle on all three of these questions because I think they're so, so deeply related, right? Um, when it comes to the notion of positive masculinity, this is a notion 
that can hopefully help people that are masculine. So people that are socialized as masculine, people that identify as male, people that have just an experience of masculinity that they live in, in their daily lives. Positive masculinity can hopefully help us find a way through this very like tangled mess of expectations on what it means to be masculine, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a young man in our society. Some of the expectations that we deal with for so many masculine folk that are just like, you know, growing up and trying to figure this out. Some of these expectations feel great. They feel like things that like, you know, we want to aspire to, whether it's very conventional masculine norms, like, you know, being courageous, being rational or being logical, which is, which is a whole other conversation. If we want to deconstruct what's going on with this expectation for rationality, because there's issues there too. But so many of these things feel great. Whereas some of these conventional norms do not feel good. Maybe they feel like something that we're never going to be able to attain, whether it's like having a body where you like look like a Marvel superhero or something like that, or whether it's like always being in control or like not crying or never crying around other people, whether it's about having a certain type of sexual orientation, uh, that conventional masculine norm is usually that to be a real man, you're heterosexual. Or when it comes to any type of sexual activity, you're the one who's in a bit more of like a dominant or controlling position. And like not every masculine person is, is into that. And I think, I think for so many people, that's become really obvious and apparent at this point, but that conventional norm is still there in our society. So for people who are not heterosexual or for people who are exploring different forms of sexuality, it can be difficult because we might feel like we're not being really masculine anymore. So there's so many ways that these conventional masculine norms get in the way of us being ourselves or they get in the way of our own health, whether it's our own sexual health, our own health in relationships, our own mental health, sometimes even our own physical health. So when we're talking about positive masculinity, we're talking about taking a critical stance on these conventional masculine norms that we're raised with and taking different approaches to it. Someone might take a look at all these conventional masculine norms and be like, wow, I'm feeling all, these, all this peer pressure to act in a certain way, or I'm feeling pressure from social media or from movies to kind of be masculine in a certain way. And some of it feels good, but some of it doesn't. So I'm going to try and stick with the stuff that feels good and ignore the stuff that doesn't. Whereas some folks might take a look at the whole thing and be like, I don't like any of this. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and do something different. So there's different ways to go about this type of positive masculinity thing. The way that I usually like to refer to it is in the plural. I talk about masculinities because there's got to be so many different ways to do it. We're all different in so many ways, even though there's so many things that link us all together as humans. There's also so many things that make us unique individuals, right? So when we're talking about this like monolithic giant monster of masculinity or femininity that's just kind of damaging it's so closed off from just like the myriad ways the infinite ways that people live in their own unique individuality right so i like to talk about masculinities how does that apply to sexual health uh, i already kind of gave a couple thoughts as to how those conventional masculine norms might affect one's like sexuality and when i say affect one's sexuality i mean affect the ways that someone might relate to themselves, think of themselves as a sexual person or what kind of sexual activity they feel comfortable engaging in, what kind of sexual activity they're worried they might get really judged for. 
one of the conventional masculine norms is just kind of always needing to be in control. Also like, you know, taking risks or like showing how tough we are, showing how strong we are, even how like how much of a daredevil we might be. When it comes to sexual health, that can just increase really risky behavior, right? Often when we talk about sexual health, we talk about things we can do for our own safety, whether it's different forms of birth control. And I'm going to include using condoms in that umbrella term of birth control, talking about just having conversations with our partner to help mitigate risk. So talking about when's the last time that we got tested for STIs. And I think like really kind of at the pinnacle of this conversation, at least for me and kind of like where my passion lies in this work is being able to open up that conversation around consent. That like, you know, as a masculine individual, I feel like I really got to be in control of things. Maybe if I ask a question to see how someone is feeling, that's a sign of weakness. Maybe it shows that I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And one of those conventional masculine norms, and that's especially reinforced by uh, like mainstream pornography, is that I always need to know what I'm doing to be able to please my partner when we're having any kind of sexual activity. So it's stuff that like really gets in the way of our sexual health when we're really strongly socialized into these conventional masculine norms, right? Uh, One thing that I want to say is I keep mentioning the word sexual activity. When I say sexual activity, I'm not just talking about like penetrative activity or like sexual intercourse or like, you know, whatever words we might be using to describe that. I'm talking about all sexual activity. So this includes kissing, sharing intimate photos or sharing intimate like videos or other content with people. People use words like sexting or like sharing nudes or like, you know, whatever. But that, that's also very much a sexual activity. So big umbrella term right there. Um, what do I think about splitting sex ed classes by gender? I think that's usually not very helpful. In my experience, when a school feels like they need to split a sex ed class by gender, there's usually one or two things going on. Sometimes both things are happening at the same time. Sometimes one of the things that's happening is that there seems to be a real divide between the masculine folk and the feminine folk in the room, where there seems to be a lot of boys in the room who are just being really, really disrespectful. Maybe there's already been a lot of like bullying or sexual harassment going on in the classroom or amongst those people. So whoever's in charge of that class is just like, whoa, this is so out of hand that I feel like we need to split this class to even have a functioning conversation at all. So that's something that I've come across. And my thoughts is usually that I'd still rather work with everyone at the same time because I want everyone to get the same message because I want people to be able to feel more comfortable talking with each other. At the end of the class, something that I always say, and since I'm male and have like a very masculine expression, I'm usually working with the boys. I always say, you've learned a lot today, hopefully. What you've learned today How are you going to talk about it with the rest of your classmates? Half of your class is not here right now. And I'm hoping that they heard the same thing that you heard. Or maybe they didn't. Or maybe it was like brought to them in like a much different tone, right? How are you going to talk with them about it? Maybe you're going to be more comfortable talking with yourselves about it now because you were all in this space with me, having this like very difficult, very awkward, uh, sometimes silly conversation. But what's next? Something else that might be going on is that there might be a lot of assumptions coming from people who decide to split that class up. They might think that the masculine folk and the feminine folk need to hear different things, which again, usually not the case. Or I might be invited into a school where there's a lot of immigrants, there's a lot of newcomers, and the teachers are not immigrants. The teachers are not newcomers. 
and they're having a hard time understanding the experiences that uh, these young people are having, the way that they might be raised and socialized within their families, within their communities, and how that might clash. And they do not get it. And then they kind of fall back on these certain assumptions that where we're living on these lands in Canada, we're very progressive. And, you know, we've made so much progress when it comes to equality uh, amongst genders, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, whoa, these people that are newer to these lands, they come from cultures that are maybe more traditional and, and haven't made that progress. So they're working with that assumption in so, so many ways. That assumption is not true. Maybe in some aspects, you can find a little bit of truth, but in so many ways, they just don't work. But that might be the assumption that they're working with. Uh, I really appreciate to work with just everyone at once. Having said that, it is the case that I run programming where I'm just working with boys and masculine folk, right? And I think the reason that that's happening is because we live in a very gendered society where we are socialized in like very, very particular ways to think a certain way about relationships, about people of other genders, about our sexuality and the sexuality of others. And so I do the kind of work that I do because I was raised the same way. So I mentioned that there's so many ways that the way that we're socialized into masculinity can have some really interesting effects on our sexual health outcomes, on how we relate to other people in relationships and when it comes to sexual activity. So there's so much to unpack. And a lot of masculine folk, a lot of people that identify as male will just kind of be more comfortable talking with someone else who really lives in that masculinity. I think that's really a shame. There's so much that we can learn from everyone of any gender and any sort of like gendered expression, but that's the way that we're socialized. So I find myself really lucky and really grateful that I can do this work. What does it say about ourselves if we're feeling uncomfortable talking about sexual health with people of different genders and sexualities than our own? I think it says less about ourselves and says a lot more about the society that we're in. We're in a society that still has a really hard time talking about sex and sexuality. In some ways, we're really good at it. But I don't think we're good at talking about sexuality in our society. I think we're good at digesting and producing sexual images. If you look at our advertisements, pornography, of course, but even the ways that there's like so much sexual images in social media, movies, TV shows, music, music videos, there's a lot of sexual stuff going on. But that doesn't mean we're actually having conversations about sexuality. That means that we're like kind of being fed. And I think sometimes force fed when we're talking about advertisements, we're being fed sexual images almost all the time. But that doesn't mean that we're actually comfortable talking about any other aspect of sexuality rather than these like very precisely constructed norms around what it means to be sexual, what it looks like. What sorts of people and what sorts of body types get to be counted as sexual or attractive, beautiful, etc.? So there's a lot of that going on, but not a lot of actual conversation around sexuality generally, right? So if we're uncomfortable about it, it makes sense. I don't think it's our fault. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So like speaking on the bigger system, what would you change in our current curriculum to promote a better and more comprehensive sexual health education for everyone? That's such a great question. Um, I think we could speak all day, if not like all month or all year on the so many changes. The biggest change that I would want to make is to have it be a longer education. For so many people, if they're lucky, they get access to one sexual health lesson a year. 
when I used to work summer school, I would do a lot of sexual health presentations throughout the day. So there'd be like a two week crunch of people taking Calm 20. And I would go in there for sexual health day. So I would get 80 minutes, which was generous compared to that usual 50 minutes. And I had to give everyone all the sexual health information that I could possibly give them in 80 minutes. So I would absolutely run my mouth. Like it was like, <laughs> it was like performance art. Like I had to like go in there and like, rant every single detail that I was just desperate to get across to these young people who only had this one opportunity to look into this at school. The way that so many of us usually learn is not in one hyper-concentrated chunk. When we're taking a math class, hopefully on one week we learn something. And then on the next week, we do a quick review of what we learned the week before and then build off of it. What an amazing way to learn. We need that when it comes to sexual health. Sexual health, if we're going to treat it like a subject, like any other subject, we need to hear the stuff more than once. So when I think about a comprehensive sexual health education, I think of a health education similar to other forms of education. We spend a full school year on it. It's a course like any other course. And people have time to sit in that information, soak up that information in these ways of thinking, in these ways of being. And they have the opportunity to learn. They have the opportunity to ask questions and interact with other people as as we all learn this stuff together. So that's my journey. Yeah. Wow. Really well spoken, Jeremiah. Thank you. Um, how can we better empower students, especially boys, to reach out for help with sex-related issues? That's such a fantastic question, Ruth. I think there's so many barriers that get in the way for anybody seeking out help when it comes to sexual health. Sometimes it's just that judgment. I talked earlier about how there's so much like abstinence only education, education that like either directly says that any and all sexual activity is bad or all sexual activity except a very precise monogamous heterosexual married sexual activity, everything else is bad. So sometimes there's that that really gets in the way. There can be a lot of judgment from other people, families, peer groups, or kind of society wide, there can be a lot of fear of like, if I seek out for help about this one thing, what if other people find out? And when we live in this society where there is so much negative judgment, there can be so much fear for reaching out. Something else that really gets in the way is the way that we're socialized by gender. So those of us that are socialized more into femininity, one of those like stereotypes of conventional feminine norms is that you don't really rock the boat. You go out of your way to kind of like make room for other people, accommodate other people and their needs, that you try to be as polite and respectful as possible, that you try not to step on anyone's toes. And that can trickle down so far and so deeply that when it comes to feminine folk reaching out for the things that they need, all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, but I need to accommodate other people's needs. And that's so awful. And that's such a huge barrier. For folks that get socialized male, I mentioned earlier this like very stereotypical conventional masculine norm that like you always know what's going on. You're always in control of the situation. You always know what's best. And that's not true. That's not how we learn. We learn by trying things out and sometimes by failing and learning from our mistakes. So it might be the case that for those of us socialized male, If we ask a question or ask for something that we need, that's already a failure because we're admitting that we don't know. (laughs) And that can be a huge, huge barrier. So we need more non-judgmental, as confidential as possible, resources and services available 
for people of every age, of every gender, of every background, of every ability. So thankfully, there are some really nice places when we're talking about the city of Edmonton that people can reach out to for help. I work at the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton. We have a support and information line that is confidential. One last thing that I think really, really, really gets in our way when it comes to getting what we need, when it comes to our own sexual health, is the many, many ways that we're taught to ignore kind of our instinct or intuition around things. So a lot of people talk about a gut feeling. Something is wrong. Maybe you don't know what it is, but like the first signal that you have that something is wrong is you feel something weird sometimes in your gut and you're like, like (laughs) something's up here, like something's wrong. And, you know, maybe I don't have the words for it right now, but something's wrong. Best advice that I would have and advice that I would absolutely give to my younger self is try and get in touch with that gut feeling, that instinct that you might have in certain situations where something feels wrong, something feels off. Maybe you might not have the words for it right now, but maybe as like, you know, we get better access to certain forms of education, whether it's like violence prevention stuff, sexual violence prevention stuff, intimate partner violence or domestic violence prevention stuff, learning more about healthy relationships, learning more about like sexual health. Maybe we'll start to pick up some of that vocabulary. Maybe we'll start to learn a little bit more. And in some of those moments where we might have that gut instinct, like, whoa, something feels wrong in this situation for me, or I'm witnessing a couple people doing something right now, whether it's a conversation or something else. And like, you know, that doesn't feel quite right. Maybe we'll start to get a better idea of that. So yeah, I'd recommend that people really pay attention to that instinct that we might have, because a lot of the time it's really trying to tell us something important, that gut instinct. Yeah, that was so powerfully put. Is there anything else you want to add as we tie up? Yeah. So some studies have come out that have been trying to figure out where young people get their sexual health from. Because as we kind of said earlier, like, it's usually not just school. When I do presentations, and I ask people about these studies, I ask, hey, where do young people get their sexual health education from? And they're like, we get it from school. But like, that's not even the number one. That's not even in the top three. So I ask people again, and they usually say the internet. And I'm like, well, what do you mean when you say the internet? Uh, And usually someone's like, okay, well, I mean porn. It's like, yeah. So most sexual content on the internet is pornography. There is some sexual stuff that's going to be on the internet that is not pornography. Um, And that might be like some of that actual information about sexual health websites that are actually going to give you information, whether that information is accurate or not is a whole other story. So I'd recommend that when people are on the internet, keeping that critical eye to what kind of information are you getting? Is this website reliable or is this website super biased in a way? Is this website coming from like an actual health authority in your area? The internet was number two in that study. That number one place that we as young folk get our sexual health info from is our friends. It's our peers. It's our siblings or cousins who are like kind of like sort of close in that age range to us, right? That's where we get that info from. That's a bad thing. And that's a really good thing at the same time. It's a bad thing because there's already so much misinformation that like it's going to trickle down. But it's also a really good thing because the more that we know, about like actual comprehensive sexual health info, the more good stuff that we learn about talking about STIs and preventing them, about making sure that we have our needs met when it comes to birth control and reproductive health, that we actually know how to use different forms of birth control, like condoms, in a way that's effective. 
that we actually know more about what makes a relationship healthy and how to navigate those incredibly difficult scenarios. That we know more about how consent works and how we can get more comfortable asking for consent, giving consent. All of that info, our friends are going to look to us for that. Our siblings, our cousins, they might come to us for that information. So the more good information that we have and the more comfortable we are talking about it, we're the ones that can make that change. We're the most likely person for our friend or for those people close to us in our lives to come to us for info. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's an empowering thing. We can make this change. Thank you so much to Jeremiah for sharing so much of his experience and wisdom with us on the challenges of the sex ed curriculum and the intricacies with working within a gendered society. The Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton is a fantastic place to find education and support. You can visit their website at sace.ca for more information. To view full transcripts of this interview, visit our website at jhcenter.org slash rootsforchange. Thank you to the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights and our funders, the Edmonton Community Foundation, who made this podcast possible. Be sure to tune in to CJSR 88.5 FM to also listen to our podcast on the radio. To keep up with our work, follow us on Instagram at rootsforchange.jhc to find teasers of the next episode. Thanks for being with us today. Your support of this podcast means so much to us, and we hope you'll join us in the next episode as well.